Hi, I'm Michael Hawk, and welcome to Nature's Archive Podcast, where I interview some of the most interesting and creative people on the forefront of conservation, ecology, birding, and environmental education. If you have a fascination with the natural world, this podcast is for you. My promise to you is that you'll not only learn what my guests have accomplished, but also how and why. And I also promise that you'll learn plenty of fascinating things about the nature that surrounds us. So give it a listen. And if you truly care about the environment and enjoyed what you heard, please take a moment to subscribe, leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or your favorite service, and share this episode with a friend. Thank you. My guest today is Brandon Kong. Brandon is a conservation field technician at Stanford University and is studying ecology and evolutionary biology at UC Santa Cruz. He has a particular passion for herping, which is looking for and studying the nature of reptiles and amphibians. Brandon's studies and field work give him plenty of hands-on herping experience, and he shares many of his amazing finds on his YouTube and Instagram channels named Biology Brandon. We have two primary goals for today's episode. Discuss what herping is and how to do it, and dive deeper into the California tiger salamander, which is the subject of Brandon's conservation efforts and studies. As you might imagine, the topic of herping is immense. After all, it covers snakes, lizards, newts, salamanders, frogs, toads, and more. And species diversity and behaviors vary dramatically across habitats. But despite the enormity of the topic, I think we pulled it off. In this episode, you'll learn about how to find herps and where to look, weather dependencies, the ethics and etiquette of herping. These are sensitive animals with fragile habitats, so this is particularly important. Along the way, we also discuss Brandon's experiences with the prairie rattlesnake and Project Rattlecam, which is a really fun and engaging citizen science project. Next, we move into the amazing world of the California tiger salamander and learn about what makes them so unique. Brandon offers some tricks of the trade in tracking and identifying unique individuals, as well as discussing the challenges of road mortality. Brandon also offers some great resources for would-be herpers looking to learn more. And one note about today's recording. I'm trying very hard to maintain my frequent episode release schedule on top of my day job and family demands. To that end, I decided to purchase some new audio editing software that promises to save a good amount of time. I used the software for the first time in this episode, and yes, there is a learning curve. There were some things that did really well that I couldn't have done previously, but there were also some things that I learned to do differently in the future. So thank you for your patience as I work to sustain and scale the show. So with that business aside, and without further ado, Brandon Kong. All right, Brandon, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Enjoy this podcast a lot. Oh, that's great to hear. I met you a couple of years ago in a field ecology class, and the thing that really stood out to me was your expertise and interest in herping. So that's why you're here today. We're going to talk about various aspects of herping. And before we get into a bit more about you, for those that really don't know what herping is, could you give a quick overview of what it entails? Yeah. So broadly defined, herping is the pursuit of amphibians or reptiles in the wild. And there's lots of ways to go about this. It can just be hiking and you stumble across the animals, or you can be actively searching them out, lifting up different types of cover objects and whatnot. So it's really a a diverse activity. Yeah, for me, I mainly just stumble across whatever I find. So I'll go out hiking and I try to see whatever I can see, regardless of the species. So I've never really gotten deep into seeking out herps of different kinds. And I'll be interested to talk to you a little bit more about that later. But how did you discover herping? What drew out this interest? in? Pretty much as far back as I can remember to when I was like four or five. I started out with catching insects for the most part. And one day I was at my uncle's house and he caught an alligator lizard in his garden and uh, gave it to me. And that just kicked off an obsession. And I pretty shortly after discovered uh, Steve Irwin and Jeff Corwin. <laughs> on Animal Planet at the time. And they really got me hooked on looking for animals. And uh, yeah, my dad would take me fishing every now and then. And if I had any time, I would poke around the edges of the lakes and whatnot to look for frogs and things like that. Were there any specific instances when you were poking around in those early years that stand out to you is oh my god moments like wow this is so cool yeah (laughs) i remember one time when we went fishing my mom was also there and she the first thing she said when we were getting there was to not stick my arm into any holes or anything like that because she was afraid that i'd get bitten by a rattlesnake or something 
And the first thing I did when I got out of the car was <laughs> run over and look in some holes. And I stuck my arm in because I saw a face <laughs> looking back. And um, I pulled out a toad that was, you know, bigger than my fist. And that was just super exciting for me as a little kid. And that definitely, I've always been uh, chasing that feeling since, I suppose. Were you interested even back then in identifying what it was you were finding and figuring out why they're there? Because I know you're studying ecology and uh, evolutionary biology. So I'm curious, was it just like the interest of finding these creatures and looking at them and, and being awed by them? Or was there even a deeper interest back then? I think initially it was just the, the sense of awe and seeing animals in the wild that really got me going. The interest in evolution and ecological interactions came a bit later. Yeah. And that's, for me anyway, that's the piece that keeps me going because it's a never ending rabbit hole of more to learn all the time. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so these days, do you focus on any specific species or families or anything like that when you are out in the wild? I've been steeped in working with California tiger salamanders and California red-legged frogs through my work recently. And in my own time, I most enjoy looking for king snakes, rattlesnakes, and garter snakes. I have a lot of fun looking for those groups. And as far as habitat goes, we have a lot of different habitats in the Bay Area. And uh, I try to sample as many of them as possible. But I probably have spent the most time in coastal forests, chaparral, and different types of scrubland. So if one were to be intentional about herping, how would you prepare when you are going out in some new habitat in the Bay Area, for example, or maybe on a trip or something like that? What are you paying attention to in terms of finding things? It definitely varies a lot depending on the taxa that you're looking for. Looking for nudes is going to be different usually than looking for snakes. And seasonality is extremely important in this case because Really, the best time for finding salamanders is going to be throughout the late fall and winter and early spring when there's still a lot of moisture, at least in the Bay Area. That's usually when you want to do it. And then usually the reptile activity, it starts up in the late winter, but it really picks up in the spring and then it falls back again once the hot and dry summer kicks in. So do you think that's driven more by weather than say time of year? Yes, to some extent. You can still find snakes in December and January if you have those odd 70 degree days that we often get in this area. But you definitely won't see the level of activity that you do in the spring when you have more prolonged ideal conditions. So on a typical spring day, let's say we're going out to look for snakes and lizards, and it's going to be a really hot day, like abnormally warm day. Would you then time it for a certain window when the temperature is ideal, or is there an ideal temperature? Yeah, with reptiles, I think a lot of people have this misinterpretation of what they like. And when people start looking for reptiles, they tend to think that hot temperatures are the best, when in reality... Most reptiles prefer temperatures in our comfortable range. So mid-60s to mid-70s is really good for finding most snakes and uh, lizards for the most part. So that's interesting. So that misunderstanding of them liking hot temperatures probably comes from the fact that they do need to warm up and you'll see them basking in the morning or yeah. something like that. So you, you associate that then with heat. Yeah, definitely. And then you do see reptiles sometimes on hot days and you do see them in the desert where it gets really hot. So it's easy to see where that belief stems from. And they do get pretty high body temperatures basking. But the important thing to remember in a lot of cases is that the surface temperatures that they are interacting with directly are going to be much higher in most cases than the ambient temperature. Well, that's a really good point. Yeah, a lot of reptiles and amphibians spend a good portion of their time underground. So many of them will retreat down into burrows or into deep rock crevices to escape the heat. But sometimes species that are more surface active on the whole, you can have some luck with finding them in more shaded areas and around water is often a good place to look. There's such a huge variety in lizards and salamanders and snakes and frogs and toads and so forth. So I, I realize there's not really one answer to this question, but what about like an individual's range? Do you see, like, for example, in, in the mammal space, 
a mountain lion is well known to range over hundreds of square miles you know, as part of its normal territory, whereas a ground squirrel might stay within a few hundred square meters. What sorts of variances do you see when you're out herping in terms of an individual's territory? Yeah, it definitely does range a lot. So there's some fossorial species, like small species of salamanders, like slender salamanders, that may live most of their life within a couple square meters. But you also have things like the migrating mole salamanders, which will sometimes move several miles. And the same goes for snakes. You have fossorial snakes that live in a very small area. And you also have snakes that hunt in a larger area. And of course, that's going to depend on their prey density and whatnot as well. And male snakes will also move pretty large distances sometimes in search of mates. Yeah, there's definitely a ton of variation there. Do you have any good examples on either end of those extremes, a a snake that maybe covers a, a large territory or a salamander that only stays within a few meters? The rattlesnakes often move pretty long distances. You may know that a lot of rattlesnake species will overwinter in dense sites communally. And as the temperatures start to warm up, they can't all stay in the same area because uh, they need to seek out their own resources to depend on. And so these snakes will often travel uh, several miles over ridges and different kinds of landscapes to get to areas where they can hunt and live out their regular life. So when they disperse, it's driven by finding resources that they can rely on without competition with the other rattlesnakes? Yes, uh, generally speaking, yeah. And, and you know, this gets me thinking, too. Who predates rattlesnakes? Birds of prey, huge predators for rattlesnakes and snakes in general, really. So owls and hawks take a lot of snakes. And then on the mammal side of things, sometimes coyotes, bobcats also prey on rattlesnakes. You get mustelids in some areas, which are pretty well known for their ability to take down snakes. And I'm sorry, what's a mustelid? Oh, so like weasels. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, those are the general mammal predators. And then, of course, a lot of people know about king snakes and their ability to eat rattlesnakes where they occur together. So it's a fairly risky proposition for a rattlesnake to disperse if they're out exposed for a long period of time, going a couple of miles. I, how fast can a rattlesnake travel? They're fairly slow moving in general, but they can keep a pretty steady pace to move a couple miles over the course of a couple of days. And I know that they're masters of blending in to the land as well. I had many cases myself just in hiking, suddenly noticing there's a rattlesnake just a couple of feet away from me, curled up, yeah. just waiting for me to pass by. So I, uh, I imagine that, that really helps them a lot as well. Will a king snake, for example, pursue a rattlesnake that's on the move? Or what's their hunting strategy when they're uh, looking for a rattlesnake? Yeah, so... King snakes are really generalists in their feeding habits. I think a lot of people have this perception that they actively seek out venomous snakes and eat them for the most part, but king snakes will eat other species of snake as well. They'll eat lizards and birds and mammals, pretty much anything that they can get a hold of. So they're pretty opportunistic in a lot of cases, and sometimes they might catch the scent trail of a rattlesnake as they're moving through the environment. And if it's pretty recent, they'll probably follow it. And they can take on a snake that's, you know, equal in size to them and sometimes even a little bit larger. And they have resistance to some extent of rattlesnake venom. So I I realize just in the natural course of that discussion, deviated away from my original intent. And, And what I'm wondering about is if there's a naturalist out there who's maybe you know, familiar with their area parks and lands and habitats, but they haven't been intentional about herping, uh, how might they get started? What should they do to grow this interest or area of expertise? Yeah, again, it's going to depend on what their target is. So a lot of people, when they start looking for reptiles and amphibians, the big thing that they want to see is snakes. So Definitely paying attention to conditions is going to be huge here. Of course, right now, it's a little bit difficult to search for snakes because it's so hot and dry. But come the spring 
or the late winter. That's really the good time to look undercover objects. So things like rocks and logs, of course, are the classic go-tos for doing this. But we must keep in mind that under those objects, there are delicate microhabitats that need to be maintained. So whenever you lift something up, definitely put it back exactly the way you found it. But yeah, so generally snakes are going to thermoregulate under different types of cover objects like that. That's why that's such a good way to find them in the right conditions. So if it's uh, moderate temperatures or even low, like down to 50 degrees or so, you can find snakes under cover objects. Also a favorite among herpers are artificial cover. So things like discarded boards and pieces of sheet metal and things like that. Snakes really gravitate towards because they're very useful for thermoregulation and they're a large piece of cover. Those are really nice things to be able to look under. So the snakes can warm up pretty quickly when they're using those objects. And also it varies in different parts of the country and different parts of the world. But like here in California, there's often a moisture seal underneath a cover object and they'll often be taking advantage of uh, that. Oh, that's a really good point that I hadn't thought of. If you're someone say in the Eastern US or the Southeastern US, I. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that if it's really hot, you'll see the same sort of behaviors. Like you won't find much out in the open. So still largely temperature driven as to when you yes. go out. In places where it's really wet a lot of the time, you they'll use the boards and things like that for different reasons, like actually getting away from the moisture rather than what we see here in California. And in areas where it gets very cold, you know, freezing temperatures or uh, even the ground freezing, what sorts of expectations would, would be herper have to take into account there? You should expect not to find too much <laughs> in those kinds of settings. Yeah, usually when you have freezing temperatures, the animals are going to retreat into deeper cover. It's you have some animals like the, the wood frog, which has a physiological antifreeze basically, and they will freeze solid, but most animals don't like to be frozen. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's super fascinating. And it's been a while since I've read about the wood frog. When, when they freeze solid, where are they? I assume that they're still hidden to avoid being found. But Yeah, I don't know a ton about them, but yeah, I believe that they will generally be like in the leaf litter or down in a water body of some sort. That's really interesting. And one thing that surprised me, so I, I just did a, a mini trip, uh, but in preparation for that, I was was looking at range maps and it looked to me like there are actually rattlesnakes in virtually every state in the lower 48. And, uh, and not just rattlesnakes, of course, garter snakes and just a huge diversity. So even in some of these colder areas, uh, I was really surprised to see how much had been reported and what ranges into different areas. Yeah, that's a really cool thing to bring up, actually, because although you don't always have the level of species diversity up in more northern latitudes, you have these cool events. Snakes, especially, they they den together in these communal areas, and you can actually experience a snake migration where tons of snakes are moving towards their denning areas, or in the spring, they're coming out. And you can see snakes in huge numbers, which is um, not something that you can really see in a really biodiverse place like San Diego. Places like that that have a lot of diversity, often you aren't going to see the huge numbers that you see in those kind of seasonal events up in more northern areas. What theories exist for why there's more communal gatherings in those harsher climates? One idea is that they are just seeking out the best areas to survive the winter. And that's what's causing kind of huge congregations. And you have smaller gatherings in less optimal locations. So that makes a lot of sense. Also, when the animals emerge in the spring, they're going to be in close proximity to uh, potential mates. So there might be some social aspects in consideration there as well. That's interesting. So I could see, you know, just expanding on a few hypotheses there. It's if one snake notices another one found a good overwintering site, hey, it must be good if this other one's <laughs> using it, so I'll join you. And then with a shorter breeding season, because I'm also thinking like, for some reason in my mind, I'm thinking about like the badlands of South Dakota or, you know, somewhere like that, <laughs> where you have a really cold winter and a really hot summer. So it's probably a, a much shorter 
window of opportunity for mating? Yeah, so one classic example of this is in Manitoba in Canada, where you have these enormous aggregations of the common garter snake. And once the temperatures start to warm up a little bit, they come out in the thousands. You can look up videos and pictures of this where it's just snakes are completely covering the ground and they will actually form breeding balls. When the larger females move through, they're emitting a lot of pheromones into the environment and they'll often be courted by tens of male garter snakes. And they all try to get in their shot while they're in these kind of uh, big groupings like that. I'll make sure to find a video or two of that and link it in the show notes. I've seen it in the past, yeah. Um, But at the same time, I'm sitting here thinking, wow, if someone has a snake phobia, (laughs) it's probably not the video (laughs) for them. Maybe, but you could also make the point that a person can be standing in the midst of all that and nothing bad at all is happening to them. That's so true. And in fact, maybe we can talk a little bit about getting over some of these phobias. It's often so disappointing when I, either myself or, or if a friend posts a snake picture or a spider picture even or something like that on uh, social media, it's about equal parts enthusiastic response. Wow, that's so cool to like burn it you know, or, or, or hit it with a shovel or like this sort of really negative gut response. And I understand why people might feel that way because it's something that they aren't familiar with. And I think the the risks get blown out of proportion and that becomes the focus for a lot of people who just aren't connected with nature. Do you have any suggestions or tips to to help people come to the conclusions that you've come to about that like most of these animals are actually pretty safe and and not only that they're necessary and important? Yeah, so I think people need to think more about the fact that these are animals and <laughs> they don't have any reason to chase you or bite you uh, any more than a bird in your yard does. They are just in the environment trying to find food and to survive just like any other animal is. And I think a lot of the time when people can see that in person, a snake just doing its thing, not really wanting anything to do with you, just minding its own business, some of that fear will uh, dissipate. I I may have mentioned this story on a previous podcast, but I'm in South San Jose. I'm pretty close to some grassy hills. And there was one evening where I was taking some trash out in my backyard and uh, my trash can's on the side of the house. So I go walking over there with a bag of trash. I, I put the trash in the trash can and I turn around to go back in and there's a rattlesnake just right there, four feet away from me. And it rattled at that point. So I walked by it the first time and it didn't do anything. And then when I came by the second time, it must have sensed that why is this person hanging around me? So it sent out its little warning, its little rattle warning. I bring the story up because I'm in my suburban backyard and there was a rattlesnake and it didn't hurt me. It didn't do anything. It warned me. It gave me plenty of opportunity to move along. And it certainly is just transient. I think it was trying to find a place to shed its skin the way it looked. So in this sort of setting, it's my, I guess my point of all of this is that if you leave it alone, it's going to go away. It, this isn't the right habitat for a rattlesnake to hang around. It's not going to like being around people. It's leave it be and you'll be fine. Exactly. I've been hiking a lot of the time where I see a rattlesnake just sitting coiled up on the side of the trail and people pass by it without even realizing. They really depend on their crypsis, their ability to camouflage, to not be detected. And if they really feel like that's not working, then they will warn you. And the the bite is usually the last resort, unless you like step on them before they've had the chance to rattle, then the bite might come before them. But yeah, they're really actually peaceful animals. So you had told me about a really interesting project It's called Project Rattlecam. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, maybe for some context, I can tell you about a little bit about my experience in the field in regard to this project. So I got the opportunity to go out to northern Colorado to visit a high elevation den site. And this uh, research project is being organized by Dr. Emily Taylor of the Physiological Ecology of Reptiles Lab at Cal Poly and Dr. Scott Boback from the 
Functional Ecology of Reptiles and Amphibians Lab, Dickinson College. And so the site is on a private ranch, so doesn't get visited too often except for uh, occasional hunting with permission. And so these researchers have permission to do research on these rattlesnakes. And so you wouldn't really expect it driving into the area that on this little rocky hill that there are hundreds and possibly thousands of rattlesnakes all in this small area. And so I went up there for about a week to help out with the field work and some of uh, the processing of the rattlesnakes because they are looking at different physiological aspects and doing mark recapture studies and whatnot. And I probably hiked up to the hill, I think on three separate days during that week. And in that amount of time, saw in the neighborhood of 150 to 200 rattlesnakes, which was really incredible to see snakes in such density because here in the Bay Area, you don't get that so much. And so, yeah, it's a really cool system to see all of these snakes in one little area. And of course, they will move on as it starts to warm up more. But in the springtime, they are just starting to come out of the dens and they are aggregating all around the, that small area. And so what's happened is cameras have been installed and they take pictures every five minutes at these different rookery sites. And a rookery is a little, basically it's like a staging area where uh, pregnant female rattlesnakes will hang out and they'll give birth to their babies and the moms will stay together for some time until the babies have their first shed and then they disperse. We have many thousands of pictures from these rookery sites. And Project Rattlecam is a community science project which has launched on the platform called um, Zooniverse. Basically, this is an opportunity for people to look through these pictures and document what's going on in them. So the vast majority of these many thousands of pictures have not been seen. So we're hoping to see lots of uh, interesting behaviors on part of the rattlesnakes as well as uh, different ecological interactions because this is a huge density and there's surely lots of predation events occurring here. So there's lots of interesting things that people could potentially see looking through these photographs and they will hopefully provide a lot of insight into the unknown lives of these animals. What kind of expertise does someone need to volunteer to help with that project? Really none because there's some convenient field guides and tutorials built into the project that people can refer to um, whenever something that they aren't sure about pops up in an image. And there's some introductory videos and uh, that sort of thing too, to help them get started. It's a really easy thing to pick up and they might see some really cool stuff. <laughs> are, are these rookeries above ground or hidden away in a nook somewhere? Yeah, so usually they are around some type of rock structure where there is some type of shelter. It doesn't need to be as deep as the overwintering dens, but it's just a nice sheltered area where the females and the babies can be protected in that kind of vulnerable time. Have you personally discovered anything interesting in looking through the photos in that project? Yeah, so this is a high elevation area in Colorado and it snows there. And I have actually seen some pictures of baby rattlesnakes out in the open and crawling over the snow, which is a, a fun observation because you don't usually see snakes doing that sort of thing. So there's unexpected stuff. Another cool thing that uh, we've been seeing is a rain catching behavior. So these snakes will actually sit in their coil and they flatten out. And when it rains, they are catching a lot of that water and they will drink off their own coils and other snakes will also drink off of each other's coils. And so it's an interesting way for them to be harvesting water. <laughs> <laughs> it's like uh, little living dishes <laughs> to catch yeah. the water. Yeah, they look like plates or pancakes. And if I were to sign up for this, is it, do I get allocated a set number of pictures or what's it look like from the volunteer's point of view? Oh, you can classify as many images or as few as you want, actually. You just click through one image at a time, answer a couple questions about it. And um, if you want to keep going, you hit next. So it's a very easy thing to do whenever you have any free time that you have to kill. And what species of, of rattlesnake is it? Oh, yes. I should have mentioned that earlier. It's the prairie rattlesnake, Crotalus viridis. And yeah, that's the only rattlesnake that lives in that part of Colorado. 
And uh, you'll see other snakes, occasionally the wandering garter snake also dens in the area. So it's cool to see them going through. Sometimes they'll be hanging out in the same shelters together. So people have uh, seen different uh, birds and mammals in the cameras as well. There was a cool predation captured of a red-tailed hawk taking one of the rattlesnakes. So there's a opportunity to see that sort of interaction going on as well. And some of the pictures, that's just, it's a camera set at one spot. And sometimes you'll see a dozen snakes or more in, in one image. And it's really cool to <laughs> see that sort of thing. So I guess it's a time-lapse sort of thing where like every minute or every X number of seconds, it's taking a photo. Yeah, it's taking a photo every five minutes. Five minutes. But yeah, that has accumulated to an enormous pile of photos. <laughs> oh, it adds up so fast. You're right. Yeah. That's actually a huge challenge because there's so many of these trail cams, nest cams everywhere that are being used by researchers. And I guess until some of the AI catches up, it's a huge challenge for researchers to actually go through this mountain of data and and make sense of it all. Yeah, definitely. So the, the community science aspect is a really nice way to go about getting data out of this and also involving a lot of people and getting them to peer into the lives of uh, rattlesnakes. So I, one thing I've noticed is when I'm out looking for lizards, I often hear them scurry away before I even get really a chance to see them. And, and I maybe I see a tail. How do you approach trying to get a good look at an animal so skittish? Yeah, when it comes to looking for lizards, there's a couple different strategies that you can use. Because there's actually two kind of general groupings that lizards fall into as far as how they thermoregulate. So lizards can usually be grouped into heliotherms, which are the active baskers, which is probably what you're seeing most of the time. One of our super common ones is the western fence lizard. And generally, you want to pay attention to the temperature when you're out. And uh, you can see where good areas for them to be hanging out would be. It's, there are, they'll often be on rock outcrops or on trees. If you spot them and approach them slowly, they're much less likely to scurry away prematurely than if you are just walking by and disturb one. And then the other category of thermal uh, regulation for lizards are the uh, thermal conformers. And as the name implies, they are conforming to the surrounding temperatures. And these lizards, a nice example of one is the alligator lizard that we have around here. So this is a lizard that you're usually going to find under pieces of cover. So yeah, you have different strategies for looking at different types of lizards. And of course, it's not always going to be cut and dry. You're going to have some overlap with these strategies. Sometimes they'll have alligator lizards basking out in the open and you scare them away before you see them. But generally knowing where lizards are going to like to be to reach their optimal temperatures is a good way to look for them without scaring them away first. So the way I interpret that then is when I'm out hiking, I should be intentional and maybe a little slower in my pace as well. So I have more chance to, to see where there may be one kind of blending in with a rock or a log or something. Yeah. Yeah. You want to pay attention to where nice places for them to pick up warmth are going to be. <laughs> and of course, depending on your habitat, I, I'm thinking back to some of my experience in the Mojave Desert. You can find a singular mesquite tree or large creosote bush or something, and, and often you'll find a lizard just hanging out in the shade there. Yeah, in that class, we saw a lot of uh, desert iguanas using that strategy. And also in the desert, you have chuckwallas and collared lizards that are going to be hanging out in rock outcrops. And there's lots of nice ledges and shade and sun type situations where they can move from place to maintain their optimal body temperatures. So yeah, it comes back to education, knowing knowing the habitat, knowing what you're looking for and what habitat they prefer. Yeah. The more you learn about each animal, the more successful you'll be in finding them. <laughs> so we've been speaking a lot about snakes and rattlesnakes in particular, and I'd like to circle us a little bit back more towards some of your research with tiger salamanders. But before we get there, maybe let's talk a little bit about newts and salamanders in general and what a would-be herper should look for how to look for newts and salamanders. Where are they? What's the diversity? Like there's a lot we can talk about here. We're pretty lucky in North America because this is actually a hot spot for salamanders in general. And of course, looking for salamanders is usually going to be a little bit different than looking for most types of snakes. Generally, salamanders like weather that people don't usually like to be out in. So if it's a really 
gross and rainy outside, that is often a good time to go observe salamanders moving around in the environment. That's especially a good time to see newts out migrating across trails. And also just in general, in the cooler and moist months, that's a good time to go look undercover objects in search of salamanders as well. The biggest family of salamanders is Plethodontidae, which are the lungless salamanders. And these salamanders are pretty much completely terrestrial. They don't have the aquatic life stage that other salamanders have. So usually you'll find them by looking under rocks or logs. And of course, again, remember to put any cover objects back exactly the way you found them. But if you lift a heavy rock and find a salamander under it, move the salamander out of the way before you put the rock back. <laughs> you want to have kind of a good idea of what you can and can't move accurately. <laughs> so if something's a little too heavy, maybe you should pass that object <laughs> and let it be. And, and we can tidy up the topic of, of ethics and etiquette here in a few minutes, but that's one that, yeah, that's like just table stakes. If you're going to be lifting things up, you have to be able to put it back in under control gently. You were talking about how you can find a lot of these animals in the damper, cooler, rainy times of year. And it, it recalled into my memory, I, I was doing a Christmas bird count. And here in California, the, the winter is the rainy season. And I was walking along a creek side with a lot of leaf litter. And suddenly I realized that there was a newt, you know, crossing in the leaf litter. It's slow rambling, like looking like it's going to tip over and, and, and fall. And uh, when I saw the first one, then it was like the search image in my head was activated because they were everywhere. And I have to say that next half mile of walking was some of the slowest walking <laughs> that I've done <laughs> because I just didn't want to step on any of those. They're, they just blend in so well in, in that sort of habitat, but they were everywhere. Yeah, they can um, move in pretty high densities. So one thing I was really excited to talk to you about is I know you've been doing some research and uh, field work for the California tiger salamander. And before, again, before I moved to the Bay Area, I just thought tiger salamander was a species. And, and later I found out there's actually a bunch of different tiger salamanders out there. So can you tell me a little bit, like, what's the California tiger salamander? How is it different from others? And what makes it such an interesting specimen of research? So the California tiger salamander is the most removed tiger salamander, evolutionarily speaking. Like, all the other tiger salamanders are more closely related to each other than the California tiger salamander is to any of them. And uh, they're endemic to California. So this is the only state that they occur in. And they have undergone a lot of different pressures over time. So in California, the number one threat against them has been habitat degradation and destruction. So tiger salamanders belong to the family Ambistomatidae. And these are often called the mole salamanders because they spend such a huge portion of their time underground. And they tend to live in areas that have seasonal wetlands where they breed and the surrounding upland habitat is usually grassland or like oak savanna, something really open, usually fairly flat. And these are really convenient places for people to build new structures. So a huge proportion of their habitat has uh, been lost to this. So they've ended up being uh, state and federally threatened. So they're a protected species. And they face other risks as well. So namely climate change affects seasonal wetlands very heavily. I'm sure you've been keeping up with our prolonged drought here. And it's been several years in some areas since tiger salamanders have been able to reproduce in the seasonal wetlands because the bodies of water just don't fill up like they did before. So they <laughs> are really facing a lot of struggles. So for those that haven't seen a California tiger salamander, can you describe to me what they look like? Yeah, so they're one of our larger species of um, salamanders in California. They can reach about half a foot or so in length, even larger in some cases if they get a lot of food. And they're pretty heavy bodied and they have yellow spots on a black background basically in general. And those colorations can vary a little bit. They can be yellow to white spots on a brown to black background. So they have a very high contrast pattern and they're really beautiful animals. 
That high contrast probably helps in terms of blending in with dappled sunlight in the wooded area or something like that. But if they're out mainly at night, if they're partaking on these migrations at night, is is there any theory as to why they have such a vibrant contrasty pattern? Once they reach their breeding areas, they are going to be spending a fair amount of time in the water in the breeding ponds and they'll be in there during the day as well sometimes usually tucked away preferably out of sight but yeah that might play into the camouflage yellow and black is often a warning signal i don't think that they've been shown to be very poisonous but it might still trigger that in a predator's brain so yeah (laughs) that makes sense You've mentioned seasonal wetlands a bunch of times. Why do they require a seasonal wetland and not like some permanent body of water? One of the main things is because uh, they aren't going to experience the same pressures from aquatic predators that they would in a permanent body of water. So things like fish and bullfrogs that would eat the salamanders or eat their eggs or the larvae typically aren't going to inhabit these uh, seasonal wetlands that dry out completely for portions of the year. So the fact that they do dry out prevents the fish from moving in. And I guess I hadn't thought about the bullfrogs. So bullfrogs, they're they're not native here to California, correct? So that's a, that's even an yeah. extra pressure on top of everything else that you mentioned. Yes. And then the other thing that they need, you mentioned that they live in burrows. I was reading that there needs to be active burrows nearby that they can move into because they really can't maintain the burrows properly. Yeah, they definitely don't dig their own burrows. They're inhabiting generally mammal burrows, like those excavated by California ground squirrels, things like that. So they need those kind of deep burrows to retreat from the harsh, dry conditions that uh, they face throughout most of the year here. Are they estimating while the California ground squirrel is doing its thing or living in in harmony together? Yeah, I'm sure that in some instances they're estivating, but really we have a whole lot to learn still about the underground lives of herbs in general. They might be doing a lot under there that we have no idea about. Interesting. And and I guess there's so much to learn. Maybe this is another area uh, that's unknown, but do they have a preference if if they had a choice between a California ground squirrel burrow and a pocket gopher or something like that? Is there any correlation where they might prefer one or the other? I think it probably has to do with local environmental conditions, which uh, types of burrows suit them better. I'm sure that like soil types and patterns of uh, temperature and humidity dictate a lot of that. It's such a delicate balance, like so much of nature, where they, they need the seasonal wetland and then or seasonal water source and a burrow, some animal that's burrowing nearby. What else do they need in their habitat? Really, the the connection between the seasonal wetlands and their upland habitat is the key to their prolonged success in any given area, as well as trying to mitigate pressures like pesticides and different kind of pollutants and ways that we degrade the habitat. When you use the word connection, it reminds me of a problem that we see with a lot of newts in the area where the areas that connect their habitat are actually intersected by a road or you know, something like that. So you end up with a lot of mortality on those roads when these migration events occur. So does the California tiger salamander migrate in the same way that, that some of these newts do? Yeah, so they'll move from their upland habitat into wherever the water collects in the seasonal wetland. And yeah, they do uh, face that same issue as the newts do, where roads often bisect their path. So where I work, there are two basic breeding areas that are pretty close by, and a fairly busy road runs right through the middle of those. There used to be a lot of road mortality, but the Stanford Conservation Program has worked in conjunction with the USGS and installed the drift fences for pretty long stretches of the road. And there's some tunnels that run underneath that connects the habitat in a way where the tiger salamanders don't end up on the roadway so much. But yeah, in other areas, that's still a big issue for them. And definitely for the newts as well. I know there's like areas where they record thousands of road mortalities in a single population annually. Yeah. And what I meant to ask, and I didn't use this word, but like mass migration. So I know that the newts, sometimes you'll see hundreds at a time migrating. I don't know if the California tiger salamander, if the populations are big enough to have that volume or not, but is it a mass event? Yeah. So actually the, the populations can be surprisingly large and they do have pretty 
big migration events, especially when they are moving from the upland to the pools. Generally, those first couple of rains that bring maybe a few centimeters at least of precipitation uh, at a given time, you'll see these mass movements of salamanders to the breeding areas. And they do it pretty much exclusively at night as well. So rainy nights are the requirement as far as their movement goes. You mentioned some of the mitigations, and, and I, I'm realizing I haven't even really gotten to ask you about what research you're doing yet. So I'm just still figuring out what these things are. But one of the mitigations you mentioned was some sort of fence, and I didn't catch that name. Can you describe what that fence was? Oh, yeah. So it's a drift fence. So basically, you have some kind of a material that's maybe half a meter tall or so that is embedded into the ground so that when the salamander is moving along its migration path towards a roadway or something like that, they are going to run into that fencing instead, which is usually a solid material. And so they'll turn one way or the other along the f and move along the drift fence. And usually this is used in research to capture the animals in, in pitfall traps that are placed along the drift fence, which we have as well. But in this case, along the roadway, it's diverting them towards tunnels that will keep them from actually crossing the road. So it channels them into a safe passage under the road. Yeah. <laughs> so what is it that you're researching about the California tiger salamander? The purpose of the conservation program really is to protect the natural resources on Stanford's lands. So research is a, a secondary thing to all of the general fieldwork and management that goes on. But one thing that I've been working on is implementing an, a non-invasive way to do mark recapture on the tiger salamanders. With amphibians, you can't really do a lot of the techniques that people use on other types of animals without adversely affecting them. So like with turtles, to do mark recapture surveys, biologists will usually put notches on the shell. Or with certain reptiles, you can actually put paint on parts of their body that will stay on for um, extended periods of time. But for an amphibian with very sensitive skin, these aren't very nice options for them. So what I've been using is this program called I3S and specifically I3S Spot. They have several variations on their program. And basically all you have to do is take a picture of the salamander and then you can basically outline the pattern on the computer and it'll put that salamander into your database and whenever you take a picture of a new salamander, you can outline the pattern and it compares it to every individual in the database. So you can tell if it's been caught before and when it was captured. And this sort of thing helps us get a handle on the population size and where they're showing up in the breeding habitat. They're moving from one area to another. Interesting. So the spots are like a fingerprint of the animal. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Each salamander has its own unique um, set of spots. And one thing for people maybe that aren't familiar with this area, you mentioned Stanford a couple of times. And if you're thinking a university or a traditional university that has a campus, yes, Stanford has a campus, but they're also, they own a lot of land. So I'm just assuming you probably can't disclose where this project is going on, but it's not on campus, right? Stanford does have about 8,000 acres of land. And yeah, I can't give you the exact location of the breeding ponds, but yeah, it's in Stanford's undeveloped land, which there's more than a lot of people realize. <laughs> right. So in the course of tracking the movements and population sizes, what has stood out to you thus far? Any interesting findings so far? Our recapture rate is fairly low, actually. This can hint towards several things. The mark recapture hasn't been going on for super long, so we don't have a ton of insight yet. But Usually when we're catching a bunch of salamanders at the beginning of a rainy season, the majority of the individuals are new individuals and a lot of them are mature adults. It's interesting to see that the population may be quite large and we're just getting lots of new individuals each time because we just have different individuals moving by the traps. Or perhaps a lot of our adults aren't making it through successive years, but we do have some that have been caught with a discrepancy of about three years now. We don't have a lot of like concrete conclusions that we can pull out of what we have so far, but that's what we're hoping for. <laughs> yeah. What's the typical lifespan? Ambistomid salamanders have been shown to be able to live several decades in captivity. They can have quite a long lifespan actually, but it's likely much shorter on average in the wild. It's the typical 
dilemma that you have in these sorts of projects of figuring out how can you collect more data with a limited budget to help you come to conclusions faster? So yeah, a, a free program that all you have to do is take pictures of the animals is a, a very convenient path for doing yeah. that. <laughs> and yeah, I'm working on some other projects, but I can't uh, disclose those. So I said earlier, we would come back to some of the ethics and the etiquette of herping. And we've touched on the importance of being careful when you're turning over rocks and logs and boards and, and things like that. But I know there's a whole lot more to it. So can you give the herping 101 guide <laughs> to ethics and etiquette? When you talk about herping to new people, comparison that's made a lot of the time is to birding because more people are familiar with that activity than with herping. And that's a nice comparison because you are going out into the environment and observing wildlife. But the animals experience a very <laughs> different thing between herping and birding. Generally, you're being a lot more hands-on when you're herping and you are interacting with the environment more directly. So you need to really uh, be mindful of your impact on any places that you're going. And just because you aren't seeing animals in a given area, whatever time that you happen to be there, doesn't mean that they don't use that area. And so you should always be careful not to damage the environment that you're searching. And you don't have to pick up every animal that you find. You wanna try to limit the stress that you're imposing on um, these animals as much as possible. I justify my own activities through my intent of becoming a research herpetologist and that I want to contribute to conservation and that I take photographs and video to try to educate people about these animals. So I feel that um, capturing an individual here and there is warranted to meet those goals. But often if I see a snake that is just out basking or coiled up in an ambushed position, I will leave the snake as it is. I take a couple pictures if I can and leave the animal unbothered. And that's, I think, a good practice to take up in general. You definitely want to know your local laws whenever you're out herping. This varies a lot from state to state and from country to country, of course, but like here in the in California, you need a fishing license to do most things when it comes to handling reptiles and amphibians. Of course, don't go onto private property if you don't have explicit permission and maybe don't be catching a whole bunch of animals when you're in a national park. Generally places where you're able to fish and do other kinds of recreation like that are fairly good places to be able to interact with the animals more directly. But keep asking yourself if what you're doing with the animal is necessary or if it might harm the animal. And then also be mindful that you can be a vector for all sorts of things in the environment. Chytrid fungus is well known for wiping out populations of amphibians across the world, and it's very easily transferred from place to place. So you should always disinfect your equipment or your boots and stuff like that because you can transfer these fungal pathogens. Sometimes you see on social media people holding big handfuls of snakes that they caught throughout the day. And I don't think that's a very good thing to do because then you're making these snakes contact each other in a setting where they probably wouldn't have. And that's also an avenue that can lead to the spread of disease as well as just stress in general on the animals. Another important thing is to really know your species. So for example, July and August might not be the best time to be flipping rocks in streamside habitats because this is the time of year where plethodonted salamanders will adhere their eggs to the bottoms of rocks. And you can really damage a population by taking out large clutches of eggs. I also really like to discourage things like rock stacking for no reason other than entertainment. You are really taking those rocks that were usable habitat in a lot of cases for a lot of these small animals and making it so that it's not that's ruining the habitat. And a lot of the times the way that rocks are sitting, it takes years to develop the microhabitat that is underneath them. So when you disturb them, it's not an easy fix to just put the rocks back once that habitat is gone. Yeah, that it's really eye-opening to hear you say it that way. And especially the comparison to birding and the case of birding, you know, I think a lot of birders know that if you see a nest, you 
you give it space. You don't want to disrupt uh, the process. But in the case of rocks or streamside habitats or things like that, our impact would be much greater than than perhaps an impact of picking up some sticks that a bird may have used for a nest or something like that. Because there's plenty more sticks to, to be found and they can move them around. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. So it's about education then and understanding that it's a totally different world and the impacts are disproportionate in particular. Brandon, uh, I appreciate all the time that you've spent here today. I always like to wrap up with a few general questions. Uh, because I know we all have our sort of favorite books and resources and things like that. If you could share some of your favorite resources with people interested in learning more about herping, like whether it be books or documentaries or uh, websites or uh, whatever the case might be. Yeah, field guides are always a huge resource for anybody starting out in any kind of naturalist activity. So ones that I particularly are the field guides by uh, Robert Stebbin. Yeah, the Stebbins field guides are really good for reptiles and amphibians. Uh, you get all kinds of information on their activity and their range and just their habitat and natural history. Another book that is, I think is really good for people starting out is called The Field Herping Guide. There's not many books like it. There's a ton of um, guys on learning how to bird, but this is one of the first ones in the herping world that kind of teaches all the different aspects of this activity. And that's by Mike Fingleton and Josh Holbrook. That's really uh, nice book to have. A really good website if you're here in California is called California Herbs, which is basically like an online field guide. I mean, it gets updated regularly. Yeah, there's lots of up good up-to-date information there. Documentaries, it's not really a herping documentary, but if you haven't seen David Attenborough's series, Life in Cold Blood, that's a really fun one to get excited about reptiles and amphibians with. Nice. Yeah, those are all great. And uh, I haven't seen the uh, the Field Guide to Herping book that you mentioned. What was that one called again? Yeah, the Field Herping, field herping Guide. Field Herping Guide, yeah. <laughs> so I'll have to look that one up. And if you could just say, snap your fingers and magically impart one ecological concept to the general public, what might that be? That's a hard question. There's so many important concepts <laughs> that can be highlighted here. But Maybe something that pertains to this discussion is there's often a lot more in these natural areas than people realize. And the places that they go are being used in ways that they aren't seeing. And so it's, I wish that people would think more about these unseen animals that depend on these places that can be so easily disrupted. Kind of a poignant example nearby to where I live. I also live in South San Jose and there's this kind of isolated hill in South San Jose that is that has been surrounded by development for years on all sides. And there happens to be a breeding population of California tiger salamanders there. And they have Despite these pressures from development, all the roadways that surround the habitat and pollution from people kind of misusing the little bit of open space that's there, and as well as climate change, these salamanders have hung on for such a long time. But in the past few years, this little patch of land, this little island that sits amongst all the urban development has been purchased by a housing development company, and it's going to be filled in and paved over in the next handful of years and people just don't think about that <laughs> when they think of the march of progress going on and i think that most people just aren't aware that there's animals there that are going to be suffocated underground because people want to put more luxury housing in the bay area yes death by a thousand cuts there's so much of yeah. this happening everywhere. All right. With that, maybe on a more positive note, do you have any any <laughs> upcoming projects that you'd like to highlight or where can people find what you're doing online? I know in the introduction, I mentioned a few things. Yeah. Like I said, I have some research projects that I can't really say that much about yet. But if you do follow me on Instagram and YouTube, Biology Brandon, no spaces, and those things will end up there at some point. And as well as all of just my regular herping finds, I like to post a lot of pictures and videos, just talking a little bit about each uh, animal that I show. So that would be a good place to go. I've really enjoyed uh, the posts that you've made on Instagram and your YouTube videos. They're really to the point. It's really good footage. You can see the animals really well. And I definitely recommend people check that out. And with that, thanks again, Brandon. I think it was a fun discussion today. 
We live in a world where sound bites dominate and true understanding is shrinking. Nature's Archive podcast digs a little bit deeper, hoping to help the world understand nature just a little bit more. I hope that this podcast has planted a seed of interest that will grow into something special for you. I record, produce, edit, and publish a show by myself as a personal passion. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes or your favorite podcast service, and then please turn around and share this episode with a friend or a family member that you think might like it. I'm not asking for money or donations, just a gift of sharing. Thanks for your support. You can also follow me on Instagram at Nature's Archive or Facebook, also Nature's Archive. In addition to sharing information about podcasts at those locations, I also share some of my photography and some short explanations of what I'm seeing. Lastly, if you have any suggestions for guests or topics for me to cover, please email me at naturesarchivepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. And one last word, I want to make sure to give credit to the music that you hear in the podcast. The opening song is called Fearless First by Kevin McLeod, and the closing song is called Beauty Flow, also by Kevin McLeod. You can find his work at incompetech.filmmusic.io.